0: With the Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Studio. my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Studio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. It's his weekly Monday appearance that has occurred, in this case, on a Monday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, the Trade Value Companion Podcast Part 2. That is the title of this program, and it is also illustrative of what we will be discussing in this program. Of course, when we last spoke to Cameron, he had published the honorable mentions and numbers 41 through 50 in his annual trade value series. He has now completed that same annual project, allowing us to examine it in full. I asked Dave Cameron here about some types of players and the challenges associated with ranking them in an endeavor such as this one. For example, types, a type of player like the young player with a short, ecstatic track record. Um uh, For example, Cody Bellinger and Aaron Judge, members of that type. Players who are immensely valuable despite being well-compensated. That's Mike Trout, for example, Freddie Freeman, Buster Posey. Only certain clubs have the resources to trade for them and compensate them when they're actually on the team. Uh, And yet, they would be incredibly valuable, as I say, to those particular clubs. Uh, Finally, a third type. I don't know if it's the last one we discussed, but a third type. The starting pitcher who sits at 99 miles per hour, but currently has a lat injury and is also a giant Nordic fellow... Could include anyone, could include anyone, that particular type. We also address some of the bigger issues uh, in this edition of Fangraph Study. For example, I asked Dave Cameron, I say, what is our raison d'etre?
1: We don't know. No one knows. No one has any idea.
0: He didn't know. He doesn't know, it turns out. That is a conversation to follow. Uh, uh, before we get there, allow me to assert and declare that Fangraphs memberships exist for reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can help support the terrific work that appears in those electronic pages. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, not entirely unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable, readers can acquire an ad-free membership, which allows them to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, uh, facilitating faster loading speeds and also liberating one from the distortive effects of advertisement. And with this particular small advertisement having now been completed, let us now move on to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraph's Studio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraph's Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now.
1: We don't, have mosqu- or we don't have fleas, but we do have ticks.
0: Okay, all right. Uh, well, that's the end of that segment, Dave Cameron.
1: Okay, you don't want to talk about the bugs and the high desert climate of Eastern Oregon?
0: No, no, I don't, but I have, okay. I have no interest in doing that. What I would like to uh, do is engage you... And conversation uh, on the on your trade value series, Dave.
1: Okay, let's talk about it.
0: What an effort! I know, it, I know, it was quite an effort. It was could, a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it's done. And I will say, uh, the formatting this year I think was an improvement on any year prior that um, allowed when pretty similar
1: uh, to last year's. Yeah, but it's also better. So, okay. what do you think was better this year than last year's? Completed? I
0: don't remember last year's, oh, yeah. and I really read this one closely. So okay. that's,
1: <laughs> that's that's the m- difference. As you read this year's,
0: yeah, that's mostly uh, the the point of more coming.
1: I do have I do have some
0: questions. So now, I think the last time we spoke, you had just completed the second, in, or your, I guess it was the first day. So we had the right. the honorable you Done the mentions. last ten and the honor Yeah, mentions. and yeah. the last ten, right? So we have a bunch of guys. Um, to consider, but there, there are some types of players I'd like to address. I think I don't know. There's so many players involved, obviously, that it, to go you know one through at this point forty would be absurd and uh, dull, very dull. But <clears throat> I would like to ask you about some types of players and uh, what's which sort of players to start. Well, let's start with the player. I think I'm going to know. The, I think I already know the answer because this is how you wrote it. But who was the who was for you the hardest player to assign a, an ordinal ranking?
1: Uh, Noah Syndergaard.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's that's what I assumed you would say because that's what you wrote. Yeah. Uh, that's what you wrote. And uh, but I w- so I'd like to start there. I would like to start with some of the conditions that make it f- that make for a player to. Um, I mean, essentially, what what you're doing is you're attempting to, given, um, given the tools at your disposal and some contacts you have in the uh, in the game, you're attempting to assess a player's trade value. What? Why is that something that's hard to do for Noah Syndergaard relative to every other player, basically?
1: Well, cause he's a pitcher who throws harder than any pitcher we've ever seen stay healthy for any period of time. So like, uh, I think someone in the comments like linked to Nolan Ryan or something like, Nolan Ryan didn't throw as hard as Noah Syndergaard does consistently. Like Noah like Nolan Ryan could throw 100, but it, not like every pitch was 100. Noah Syndergaard, before he went on the table this year was sitting 99 with his fastball. That was his average fastball speed. It was 99 yeah. miles an hour. We don't know, no one knows. No one has any idea. How well a human arm can sustain durability, pitching uh, in the major leagues at this level of effort, throwing that hard. So he's already in an unknown, um, but there's basically no historical comps for. You're just kind of flying blind, hoping that guys would throw this hard. If 95 can work, then maybe 96 can work, and then you're kind of following the transitive property, hoping 99 can work long term. Mm-hmm but we don't really know. And then he got hurt. <laughs> so like uh, I know it's his lat. It's not his elbow. It's not his shoulder. But he has a physical discomfort that has sidelined him, uh, not allowed him to pitch, which obviously hurts his current value. If you're a contender looking for an upgrade for the rest of the season, Noah Syndergaard doesn't really help you that much because it's not certain that Noah Syndergaard is going to pitch again this year. Um, so you have a essentially a prospect again, a guy who has future value but not a lot of present value, who's sustained an injury... Doing something that seems dangerous to someone's health, uh, and no necessarily historical comparisons to suggest that um, we know one way or another whether he can continue to pitch at this level, throwing as hard as he can uh, over you know a long term period of time. So the upside is obviously tremendous, right? Like Noah Syndergaard, a healthy Noah Syndergaard was the second or third best pitcher in baseball uh, last year. Um, anytime you can have a 24 year old six or seven win pitcher. Uh, you definitely want that, especially when he's making the league minimum or something close to it. So Syndergaard's um, upside is tremendous, but his risks are also tremendous, and it really depends on how heavily you weight um, risk and reward. De- would determine uh, what you'd give up for Noah Syndergaard.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. So if you just um, if one just examines the uh, the table at the conclusion of your you know the final installment of your trade value series, right? You could see um, you could see Syndergaard. Uh, you can see the years of control he has, and you can see how much, uh, you know, what it, what his projections are for those years, right? Yeah. So he's controlled 2018, 19, uh, 20, through, through 2021, right? And he's like between four four 4.7 wins and 5 wins each year over that span. And if you look, if you go upwards, you find that he is, for example, projected to be worth more than John Gray, more than Lance McCullers, uh, more than Miguel Sano, more than George Springer, who finished 18th on the list. There are a number of players uh, for whom the projections say, but but I, and so what I'm seeing here is what the point I'm pointing is uh, that you are attempting to bake in the the risks associated with this profile. Well, the immediate risks because he is injured, and then right. the sort of near term risks, which is what happens when um, when a guy possesses this sort of velocity. What does it do to to the possibility he's going to be injured?
1: Yeah, I mean I think when, when I, especially when I talk to people in the game. Um, it's basically an annual exercise of, like, sending the list around to friends who work for teams. And then every year they say, move the injured pitchers down. <laughs> or move the, the guys who we have concerns about. So, like, Carlos Carrasco is a guy who's been on this list, I don't know, three or four times now since his breakout year a few years ago. Um, signed a super team-friendly contract extension. So he's really good. He's really cheap. You know, he's not currently injured. He's pitching pretty well for Cleveland right now. This is a guy you think like this, you know. He has all the makings of a very elite trade chip. And they talk to teams in the game, like, I don't know what I'd give up for Carlos Carrasco. This is a guy who's had, you know, multiple arm injuries. He's had Tommy John. He's had shoulder issues. He's never thrown 200 innings in a year. At any point, I think Carlos Carrasco's arm could just blow up. And what teams really don't want to do is trade a monster package for potentially nothing. So they'll take less return in terms of upside, to get higher security and a higher floor, um, which is one of the reasons the top nine are all hitters. Most of the top 20 are hitters. Um, when you talk to people in the game, they are very scared of giving up substantial packages for a player who, you know, you look at, like, man, four years of control, and they're like, you know, I don't know what Carlos Grasco is going to be in four years. I don't know what Carlos Grasco is going to be in four weeks. Um, so I think with with health risk pitchers, Syndergaard has put himself in this category with this lat injury that's caused him to miss most of the year. There is some significant concern about how much we should give up for what is essentially an unknown. And, you know, like, I wouldn't say that the A.J. Preller situation last year where he traded Drew Pomeranz uh, and a few other pitchers, uh, James Shields and, and a few other guys who, when they got to their new teams, were like, oh, by the way, my arm hurts. Uh, that's that, That's not necessarily the norm in baseball, but I do think there's some... Uh, legitimate concern that teams do not get all the information when they're acquiring a starting pitcher or a pitcher in general and there are times when a guy shows up and I'm like yeah i've been having cortisone shots for weeks now sorry they didn't tell you
0: right or even if just if if one team f- finds a a, a, um, a formula that works how well even that translates to the next team is is another question because there's a whole different medical personnel, right? Right,
1: and there's also yeah. this really interesting uh, kind of game theory aspect of this is like as soon as a starting pitcher with health injury health concerns becomes available, everyone immediately assumes the guy is broken, right? Like if Noah Syndergaard was put on the trade block tomorrow, everyone would think like the Mets have figured out that he's screwed. Like the <laughs> Mets are the only team who has his medical information; they're the ones who know him the best. It's like as soon as you say he's available. We think it's because you're trying to unload a, you're trying to sell us a, a bill of goods here. Like you know that there's something really wrong that we don't know and you're trying to take advantage of that information asymmetry. So anytime like a pitcher with health concerns hits the market, everyone's like, well, he must be uh, just <laughs> yeah. about ready to break down.
0: By virtue of him being made available, yeah. it is there's a strong probability that he's not this he's not worth as much as you would assume.
1: You are signaling to the other team that you don't think you are going to stay healthy. Oh, I mean, you could try to make the case like, oh, you know, we're just rebuilding. We, you know, we're looking at long term value. Blah 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 blah. But like, you know, if the if the Mets decide to put like Jacob Degrom on the market, he's maybe a slightly better example because he's not currently on the table. This Jacob deGrom's pitching really well right now. He's having a good season, but Jacob Degrom has two Tommy John surgeries in his history. Um, you know, he finished last year on the table list, his arm with, his, with elbow pain. Like, he is certainly another one of these high upside, high risk guys. If the Mets decide to put Jacob DeGrom on the market, teams are going to be suspicious. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that is funny. Uh, is there is there any precedent for a pitcher just announcing, a pitcher who's been made available just announcing, my arm hurts, don't, <laughs> don't trade for me?
1: Uh, not that I know of. I don't, I don't generally think that teams... Uh, uh, allow their players just to go to the media and be like, yeah, hey, by the way, we were hiding all this medical information. I don't I don't recall that happening.
0: What's the incentive? I mean, is there an incentive for a player not to do that other than he would just make his current team mad?
1: Um, I mean, I think you, that's a good way to, like, not just hurt your own trade value, but, like, the next time you're a free agent, teams are going to be like, that was insubordination, not uh-huh. cool. Like, you, you went out in the media and bashed us publicly, that's a good way to not get employed again.
0: Yeah. all right. Yeah. I guess was that, that that's the case. Uh, oh, yeah. I th- this has already um, generated some a series of questions for me. Th- this this case with Noah Syndergaard. You mentioned. Okay. Oh, so he. Uh, I think, f- somewhat notably, and this was, I, b- I believe, um, uh, Travis Satchick wrote about this before the season began. Noah Syndergaard underwent a pretty uh, rigorous. Um, training regimen over the off-season. Wasn't that right? With yeah. the Bulls bowl, of Doom? That was a sort of... He
1: he decided that throwing 98 wasn't good enough. He wanted to throw even harder, so he bulked up.
0: So so he, that's what I was going to ask you. Now, was it so that he could throw harder, or was it so that he could throw just as hard but with uh, with less effort? Because he, it seems as though the
1: latter wouldn't would make sense. He said he wanted to throw harder. Okay. So he came to spring training and was like, yeah, I want to try and throw 100 okay. on every pitch.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a good amount to throw. If,
1: <laughs> I mean, it's, the yeah. thing is, like, in 10 years, we might learn that, like, it's feasible. Like, what, what I'm saying, we don't know what this does. It's mm-hmm. not saying, like, this is guaranteed injury. Like, anyone that throws 100 is going to blow their arm out. It might be that there's some physical way to throw this hard and, you know, be, be healthy. I like, 50 years ago, when everyone was throwing 87, they would have looked at, like, an army of guys throwing 93 and be like, that's unsustainable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's too fast. You can't do it. Well, uh, you know what makes the jump from ninety three to a hundred not okay if the jump from eighty seven to ninety three was okay. We've already gone through this revolution where guys now throw seven, eight, nine miles an hour harder on average than they did fifty years ago. So could they throw seven, eight, nine miles an hour harder than they do now? I don't know. <laughs> I, like, I think this is kind of the thing. Is like, it's possible that maybe Noah is on the leading edge, and like, we're going to find out in fifty years that everyone like throwing a hundred is like the prerequisite for being in the major leagues. You have to do that on every pitch, or else you don't make the cut. Right now, uh,
0: with regard to this question of velocity, now I know that we have a combination of the Statcast uh, and PitchFX data at the site It goes back, I think, to two thousand
1: seven, 2007. The First year of PitchFX.
0: Okay, right. So that's so that's the earliest year for which we have data relating to uh, pitch type and velocity.
1: Well, we have the baseball Info post solutions data going back to two thousand two. That was recorded from TV radar velocities. But the first one that's like uh, tracking information by cameras or radars is two thousand seven. Okay. All
0: right. So, so but even the two thousand two data, we can assume that that's um, that you know that it's roughly accurate. Uh, but my, here's my question: that, Now that's just the stuff we have in a database, right? Uh, And I don't know if you're the right person to ask about this, but for how long do we actually have, like, velocity readings? Um, So I think, like,
1: there's historical scouting reports, like the Hall of Fame. I know has put up, like, scouting reports of guys who made the Hall of Fame where, you know, scouts have been recording velocity with radar guns for 40 or 50 years. Um, So I think going back to the 60s or 70s, um, we don't have, you know, every pitch measured. We don't have... Um, consistent, that, like we don't have a database of every pitcher, but we certainly have like you know some indication of what, on average, guys were throwing twenty years ago.
0: Okay, that's really what. Well, yeah, I would like to. Uh, I would read a post, and so maybe I should be the one to write it. Uh, it could just be short, but on uh, historical historical velocities.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the easiest ways to cheat on this would be to look at like draft scouting reports. Right, mm-hmm. Baseball America has been publishing these since the mid eighties. Yeah. Um, and you can basically see the progression of like what was considered elite velocity based on their rankings um and what the guys threw, right? So like it wasn't that long ago, maybe fifteen years ago, when it was notable that a guy would throw ninety five, a high school pitcher. So like you would hear like, oh yeah, this guy's gonna be a top ten overall pick because he sits ninety to ninety three but he touches ninety five. And that was enough of a kind of a, a um I don't know, a tease or, uh, an incentive for a team to consider them a, you know, very high draft pick. Like, when Josh Beckett got picked, right? Like, Josh Beckett was, like, I think, like, 91 to 94, and he got up to 97 sometimes. Um, Scott Casimir got up to, like, 96, 97 as a high schooler. So these guys were considered, like, the best pitching prospects in years, because they, high schoolers who could get in the mid-90s. Now, everybody gets in the mid-90s. Like, this is, um, their, their peak velocity uh, is now the norm. And so you can kind of just look at it and say, like, yeah, not, now if you don't throw in the mid-'90s as a high schooler, you probably are the a first-round pick.
0: Yeah, to to give a sense of, of uh, how far and wide this uh, – I mean, it's not an epidemic. It's a, a reverse epidemic, I guess, in that it's good, but um, or at least probably good, uh, to, to which velocity has spread. I, I went to a school. Uh, you know – you have a sense of the type of school I attended. You know, Saris went there as well. To give you a sense of the sort of – Dynamic athletes that mm-hmm. that attended, not only attended but also played on the baseball team at Milton Academy.
1: Right.
0: Uh, a pitcher from Milton Academy was just selected in the third round by the Arizona Diamondbacks, named Matt Tabor, okay. and he throws. He sits, or I don't know if he throws. He hits ninety-five miles per hour. Yeah. So you could see how the tentacles, how fa- right. how far they've far gone, the gone from
1: the Stulian Soros to a guy who can throw ninety-five.
0: Yeah, that's that's yeah. what happened. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's how far and wide is going to be. Uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, yeah, his, the idea of historical velocity is, I guess, compelling. Because you you do hear, uh, well, there's obviously the obvious stories. Noah and Ryan and I think Bob Feller. What, wasn't it someone like driving by in a motorcycle or something? Right, or
1: yeah.
0: Bullet? Did someone throw faster than a bullet? Uh,
1: but I don't think it's possible.
0: Probably not possible. Yeah. yeah
1: that would probably break you off.
0: So, anyway, but that's a, that's a brief investigation of Noah Syndergaard and I guess the complications attached to Where is he right now in terms of rehabbing? So he
1: announced this morning on Twitter that he's going to begin a throwing program, mm-hmm. for whatever that means. So he's probably going to like play long toss or something. Um, but, you know, realistically, from like when you begin a throwing program to get back to the major leagues is, you know, significant. Like, it's mid-July. The Mets are basically out of the race. Like, I think there's a chance Noah Syndergaard can pitch again this year, but I wouldn't count on it.
0: Right. Alright. Uh, here's another sort of player about whom I'd like to ask you. And that is, uh, that is players like Cody Bellinger like Aaron Judge who have almost no major league track record. Yeah. Now, on the one hand, they've been good. On well, another well, hand,
1: awesome,
0: yeah, they've been awesome, right? right. On another hand, um you, you know, you can you could extrapolate from their minor league numbers how real the current the current uh, production cur- you know is. And so you could say, well, it's not impossible that they could have done this based off of their physical tools. Right. But it's still – the major league track record is very short. But because it's, but because they've only been in the major leagues for a short amount of time, that also means they have tons of uh, controllable years left, which right. obviously adds to their value. Right. So w- tell me about the calculus for dealing with guys like Aaron Judge and Cody Bellinger and who maybe their uh, sort of like uh, s- spiritual predecessors were in this project and how that's ended
1: up for you. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously guys like this who... Um, you know, Bellinger, Judge, weren't top even 10 prospects, I think, on Eric Long and Higgins list before the season began. So, like, they were known prospects. They were, you know, they were guys. But these weren't considered the elite of the elite. And so they've leapfrogged all those guys. I mean, you know, Juan Makata was the top-ranked prospect on, on this list. I think Adam at 41st or something. Bellinger was, what, 11? Judge was 6? So I'm saying, like, not only did their prospect valuations... Like, missed the mark a little bit, but they've now, they've now become significantly more valuable than the best prospect in baseball when three or four months ago they were considered significantly less valuable. Than. So how much weight can you put on a, um short-term major league success? I think the key is in this exercise, we're not necessarily looking to project long-term, uh, who's gonna be the best player, right? That's kind of the exercise with the prospect list is who's going to have the best career overall. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily what we're trying to do here. Um, because Judge and Bellinger are producing at a very high level in the major leagues right now, a major league team could look at them and say, you know what, I don't know what they're going to be three, four, five years down the line. Maybe I still think Juan Mercado is going to have a better career than those guys. But I'm winning, and I need mm-hmm. a corner outfielder, and this guy can help me right now. And we see what teams give up in terms of future value to get present value. They do it with rentals all the time, right? Like, someone's going to give up a monster package for three months of J.D. Martinez because J.D. Martinez is a slugging corner outfielder who can help your team get to the postseason and help your team in the postseason. Um, and teams are going to say, you know what, I'm I'm willing to sacrifice a lot of future value to get you in my lineup right now. Uh, Judge and Bellinger are J.D. Martinez-esque in terms of their present value. Like, maybe you don't think they're they're going to hit quite at his level, but they're not that different in terms of um you know Somewhat high strikeout sluggers who aren't amazing defenders. Judge is probably the best defender of the three, um, at least in terms of uh, present value. Bellinger could become a better defensive outfielder with more time, but he played a lot of first base in the minor leagues, so he's learning a new position effectively. Um, But you're basically looking at those guys and being like, oh, I get a 21-year-old or 25-year-old version of J.D. Martinez, and then I also get them for the next five years. So I think it's the trade value series isn't necessarily about extrapolating who's going to be the best player long term um it's looking at it and saying okay look if a team is trying to upgrade right now they're going to look at these guys as guys who they can plug into the lineup, help them today and also get all the significant value from that's just way more valuable than someone who needs a couple more years of production um even a guy like Raphael Devers right like Raphael Devers seems to have a fantastic future uh everyone agrees he's going to hit but the Red Sox were in contention and need a third base they're looking at him and be like no, we don't think you're good enough we, we might go trade for Martin Prado or David Fries instead um, that's one of the reasons he's not on this list. Is if if your own organization thinks that you're not good enough to help them in a stretch run, uh, that's and they have to go give up future value to get a significantly lesser player to help this year. That that limits your trade value even if you're going to have a fantastic future.
0: No wait, is it is it that the Red Sox don't think he's well? I mean, yeah, that might be part of it. But is it also that they feel like he might be better from like ages 22 through 28? No, at at this point, the
1: service time issue is gone. So, like this, you know, the if you get called up at this point versus getting called up at the beginning of next year, it does absolutely nothing to to your when you're a free agent or when you're a super two player. If if they're planning on Raphael Devers being their starting third baseman next year, which is almost certainly the plan, then there's no service time harm in calling him up and playing him right now. Oh, there's not. No.
0: What if they called him up after like you know, like three weeks next year?
1: Right. So if that was the plan. Uh, then potentially you'd lose an extra year of control. But I think if you're, if you've been talking about Devers as much, you know, like, you know, they just promoted him to AAA, so he's gonna spend the rest of this year at AAA if he doesn't get promoted to the big leagues, assuming he does well, he went four for four with a double and a home run in his first, uh, his first AAA game, Um, he's gonna get a September call up, so he's gonna get some service time then. It's so like, in order to not, uh, you know, get him that year of service. If you're going to put him on the on the roster and give him 25 days of service in September, you'd have to hold him back to like the end of May next year. You'd basically have to go like two months without Devers as your starting third baseman. No real contender is going to be willing to do that. It's um, it's the kind of like the Nationals could have done that with Trey Turner. Like you know we're like oh nice rookie year. Um, you know we're <laughs> going to send you back to the minors for three months to try and get that year. No one's going to do that, right? Like they're just going to be like yeah you you you're part of our team now.
0: Okay. All right. Uh yeah, it must be such a it must be so satisfying if you are in a front office and the one position that's been the most difficult for you was also the one at which you have like a premier prospect. Yeah. Because obviously it's a good problem to have like if you have a very good well, I don't know, like to a to a lesser degree, like take the take the Dodgers for example, like it's pretty clear that Austin Barnes you know could be a pretty good major league catcher at this point. Yeah. And They've had it, but they've had him like in the in the high minors or in a very limited role in the majors because they've had Yasmani Grandal. Yeah. Um, but Austin Barnes has been fantastic this year, and so you know if Grandal were injured or left the team, you know whatever, then then they'd still have a good catcher. But um, so that's a good problem to have. But to know that you have someone like Devers, 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 Devers.
1: It's Devers apparently. I've been calling Devers. him Devers forever, but then I actually talked to people and they're like, no, it's Devers.
0: Devers, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, to know that, like, third base has been a, a little bit of a black hole in the last couple of years, and to know that uh, you have a guy who appears able to, um, you know, to fill that hole must be uh, no, must be satisfying.
1: It is. A, I would say it's interesting, though, that, like, you have a prospect who's at 20 years old just destroyed double A, um, you know, by all accounts is significantly more ready than Yohan Moncada was a year ago when they gave him a shot and he flopped in 20 at-bats. Um, Dave Dombrowski has not been one to be shy to call up prospects in his career. He was, uh I believe, in charge of the uh, um, uh Marlins when they did the Miguel Cabrera kind of switcheroo and put him in the outfield as a twenty-year-old. And even though he never played the outfield before, um, you know he's he's not been one to be shy about either trading or promoting prospects aggressively. Um, and for them to look at Devers, look at what they have internally. Look at, like, what's a pretty mediocre crop of third baseman, right? Like, when you're discussing between David Freese, Martin Prado, Todd Frazier, like, these are not great players. These are solid role players, platoon guys. Um, You know, they should probably trade for Todd Frazier just because then you have a right-handed version if you call Devers up. And he could also take Mitch Moreland's spot at first base if you need to. Like, these guys make some sense for the team. But to say, like, oh, yeah, we don't even want to give Devers a look before the trade deadline, before we give up future assets for a mediocre player... Um, it's. I would. I would say it's either surprising or they know something we don't know. Um, that you know, perhaps Devers just really isn't ready for the big leagues. But I would have. Cause I would have thought, given what they have and what he's doing, that he would have already been been in the major leagues.
0: Yeah. Uh, one question we were we were talking specifically about Judge and Bellinger here a couple seconds ago. Uh, you mentioned their their defensive ability and also you know relative to JD Martinez, who's kind of an interesting comp for both of them. You also mentioned that, that Bellinger has played first base almost exclusively up through the minors, even though uh, he appears to be quite an athlete. Yeah. Uh, and even though, oh, I think at the major league level, has he not played at least a couple, made a couple appearances in center field? I
1: don't know if he's actually, played. he played there in spring training for sure. Okay. I don't know All if right. he's played there in the majors. All right.
0: Uh, he's definitely played the corner outfield. Yeah. A, a position in which he did not make any appearances as a minor leaguer. And I'm curious, I suppose, if you know anything about this, maybe Eric Langenhagen is the dude to talk about this. Why the organization? You know, typically, you see an organization use a player at the position that he, at which he might not be qualified, right? But which, if you bump him down, you know, a little bit uh, down the spectrum, he'll he'll probably uh, he'll probably do fine. Yeah. Uh, but here we have a reverse: This is a guy who's played first base almost exclusively as a, as a minor leaguer, and then. Uh, upon arriving in the major leagues they give him a, a tougher job and he, he seems, I don't know, at least the eye test suggests that he seems to be handling it fine.
1: Now, do yeah, you have
0: any as to the wisdom behind that?
1: So I think in Eric's write-up uh, from the Dodgers list this spring he mentioned that uh, there was a, people in the Dodgers organization who thought Bellinger could legitimately be a good center fielder and certainly in a bottom edge corner outfielder because of his athleticism, but no one was necessarily pushing for that move to happen because he was such a good defensive first baseman. Like Eric was talking about him potentially being a, a 70 fielder at first base and maybe turning into the best defensive first baseman in baseball. So I think if you have a guy like that, I think, you know, maybe a parallel would be like Brandon Phillips, um, who was, you know, for a, for a long time considered the best defensive second baseman in baseball, came up as a shortstop. Brandon Phillips could have almost certainly moved to shortstop at some point in his career, right? Like, um, he had the range, he had the athletic ability, like there was no real reason. He had he a, hit a good enough arm. He didn't really need to move off second base, but he was just so good there that there wasn't any real motivation to do it. Um, you know, Adrian Beltre is probably another example of a guy who he probably could have played shortstop as a big leaguer. Uh, super athletic, you know, really good range. You know, one of the best defensive third basemen of all time. But he got so good at playing third base that no one mm-hmm. was like, "Yeah, let's move, let's move Adrian Beltre to a different position and potentially take some risk here." Even if we think he could do it, we already kind of have a known, uh, right. you know, a known quantity at third base. Manny Machado, I guess, is another example. Um, he's played so well at third base, there's no real incentive to move him back to shortstop, even though he could do it. So, I think once you kind of Show and Bellinger apparently in the minors showed very high level fielding ability at first base. Teams were, you know, potentially teams were like, "Well, we know what we have here, and this is already really good. Why risk it?"
0: Right. And I guess it's, I guess there's also something to be said too for right, a, a player's uh, specific physical tools. Yeah. Don't necessarily. Um, they, they they don't necessarily create a direct translation. I you know I have a tendency to think, and I'm I'm, I'm, I'm sure others are guilty of this too. You say, well, here, this guy's at third base, and, uh, that, the positional adjustment there is plus 2.5 runs over the course of a season. Right. But shortstop is plus 7.5. If I can have him move up to one that's, you know, five runs uh, more important, then that's what will happen. But obviously, uh, there are, there are probably physical tools a player could possess that would lend themselves to playing one position for some reason to play it extra and I, I assume like like maybe Chase Utley was an example of that at second base right, right. like he didn't really have an arm um, but he he had this sort of the sort of range and glove that would allow him to succeed at second base in a way that would not translate directly right. to shortstop
1: yeah I mean I think uh, you know maybe on the other end of the scale the easiest way to think about this is Hanley Ramirez right like Hanley Ramirez was never a good defensive shortstop but he was a passable defensive shortstop for a while um for you know 10 years almost and he had a decent amount of value there because he wasn't crushing you at shortstop the defense wasn't good but the offense was worth it and so you had you know an elite hitter at the middle position who you know cost you some runs in the field but overall the trade-off was worth it and you're like okay well if we take a you know uh below average but not horrendous shortstop and stick him in a corner outfield position this should go really well (laughs) <laughs> and then it went the opposite of really well. Yeah, and did. Hanley Ramirez very quickly went from shortstop to DH because he can't play the corner outfield. He just physically can't do it. He just was incapable of tracking fly balls. And so this is a kind of an example. Of like Hanley Ramirez's most valuable defensive position was shortstop. And then once he couldn't do that anymore, he didn't have a defensive position.
0: Yeah, and, it, well, of course, that's uncommon. But it, but it does uh, illustrate the, the possibility for this thing we're discussing, which is a certain set of tools and temperament, maybe, right. Yep. Temperament might lend themselves. I, I can imagine being engaged at shortstop in a way that you wouldn't in the corner of the field, because it's sure. you know, with the exception to catcher, it's probably the most important defensive position. There's yeah. a lot more involvement, and for some guys, that just might be that sort of engagement might be necessary f- for them to play a position well. Yeah, and, uh, and I uh,
1: mean, you know, tracking fly balls is different than tracking you know line drives or ground balls, and you know potentially some guys could just be interested in doing one and not interested in doing the other.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh Let's see, what was your – oh, yeah, I want to ask you about another type of guy. So we've talked about short track records. That was Cody Bellinger Aaron Judge. Uh, we've talked about um, – well, I mean, it's sort of singular example in Noah Syndergaard, but illustrates a type which is, you know, the uncertainty attached to pitchers. Um, you brought this up, I think, with, with regard to your discussion of Mike Trout. Um, and, and when when conceiving of trade value in Mike Trout, uh, you illustrate another type of class that exists or a division that 's that one has to make when discussing trade value and it 's the fact that um, so in a vacuum, yes, Mike trout is you know is uh, has almost more trade value than anyone else in the majors but he's also he 's also making quite a bit of money isn 't that right
1: yeah thirty three billion a year
0: Right, so thirty-three million a year—that's that's pretty good, and that's a lot more than I mean some of these guys on the list, yeah. Who are making, you know, Carlos making five hundred and twenty
1: thousand dollars a year? Okay, right,
0: yeah. which is you know, certainly um, you know is one of the reasons why he's why he's atop the, the list because yeah. he's producing quite a bit. Uh, here's the thing: so Mike Trout, relative to the amount that he's getting paid, is wildly valuable,
1: yeah.
0: but the amount that he's getting paid necessarily makes him makes the acquiring Trout prohibitive for X number of clubs in a way that acquiring Carlos Correa wouldn't be.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things that, like, you know, because I was doing kind of blurb style, um, like, maybe I should just write a full post on the Correa-Trout decision, but, like, it's a little complicated because if you look at the teams who would actually surrender significant amounts of talent for Mike Trout to get him for the next few years it's really only teams who are at the top of the payroll spectrum who thought they had a chance to retain him long-term. Um, because it, the cost to acquire Mike Trout is so prohibitive that if you're a payroll challenge team, the kind of guys you need in order to get Mike Trout, to trade away to get him, are mm-hmm. the kinds of guys you need to put around Mike Trout in order to win. Right? It's like Tampa Bay can afford Mike Trout's $33 million, but they couldn't afford to win with Mike Trout after giving <laughs> up Chris Archer and Kevin Kiermeyer and, like, whatever, like, their six most valuable assets in order to get him. Like, at that point, they would have strip-mined their system. Uh, Trout's making $33 million a year, so they have $40 million in payroll for the rest of the team. It would be Mike Trout and Logan Morrison and the Seven Dwarfs, right? Like, <laughs> So teams like this don't have enough young, controllable, cheap talent, and also the payroll flexibility to put good players around him in order to make these kinds of trades. So even though a team like Oakland or Tampa Bay would obviously love to have him, they're just not going to be in the bidding, right? Well, this actually goes for most of the teams in baseball. Uh, I mean, you can just rule out, like, the Royals. <laughs> it's like, they, they can't trade for Mike Trout. They don't have, like... They could offer every single player in their entire organization, their entire major league roster, their front office, their scouts, and the Angels <laughs> would still say no. They'd be like, "Yeah, you don't you don't have enough." Uh, so there's like some of those teams you can just eliminate. Really, when you get down to it, you look at like who could trade for Mike Trout, give up enough talent, and still think they had a chance to put a winning team on the field. You have the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Cubs, maybe the Astros. That's about it. Maybe the Phillies if they like unloaded their farm system. But, like, they're probably not going to do that. So these are, like, the three or four or five teams who would realistically be in the bidding based on, like, ability to acquire and ability to win after they acquire. And so if you're one of those teams, if you're the Yankees or the Dodgers, um, the Cubs, I don't think, are over the luxury tax, but they're close to it, and acquiring Trout would certainly put them over the luxury tax. You're paying uh, for the Yankees and Dodgers because they've been over so often. You're not only paying the $33 million, you're paying a 50% tax on your overage of luxury tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the Dodgers case, now there's a new 100% surtax over $240 million that they're actually pretty close to. So including luxury tax payments, you're probably looking at more like 50 or $60 million a year out of the owner's wallet. So to go to your ownership group and say, hey, we want to trade like our seven best prospects and like one of our really good young players off our big league team, and we want you to cut a check for $50 million a year for the next three years, and we don't know that we can keep this guy long term because he's going to get like $600 million in free agency that's a really hard sell and uh, I'm not saying no one would be willing to do it like I think if, if Mike Trout was available I imagine Andrew Friedman would be like yep I want the best player of all time or the best you know one of the best players of all time uh, we'll give you you know with this crazy farm system we've spent so much money we've got all these prospects we've got the money we can afford to sign Trout long term he obviously likes LA um, you know I imagine that there would there would be suitors. It's not like everyone would be like, nah, we don't really want Mike Trout. But the hurdles to go through that kind of transaction, to get your owner to buy in, um, to convince him to give up so much talent and, and then pay so much money and then pay a luxury tax premium, uh, at some point, the GMs would just decide, you know what, Carlos Correa is pretty good and he doesn't come with any of these hassles. I'm going to trade for him instead.
0: Right. And to, to a lesser degree, I think this probably the same principle applies to at least three other players in the top 50 for trade value. Uh, uh, Max Scherzer, who's owed quite a bit of money, uh, Freddie Freeman, and Buster Posey. Does that yeah. sound reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same principle, right, where the the number of teams who would actually be capable of acquiring those players and, as you say, um, conceding the requisite talent to, to acquire those players in a deal – uh it would it reduces the the suitors by what but there only have to be two i suppose to to keep those various players' trade values rather high
1: yeah I mean that's the thing you don't need fifteen suitors, you need a few serious ones who right. are you know significantly uh incentivized to keep the player away from the other team and land them themselves but I think sure maybe the slightly different case because. Uh, the way the Nationals sign their contracts is with tons of deferred money. So is due $120 million for the next four years, but $105 million is deferred. So you could actually, I think, go to your owner and make a decent case if Scherzer was available. If you're, like, looking to add a starting pitcher and be like, look, we can add the second-best starting pitcher in baseball right now, a legitimate number-one starter, this guy could be a huge difference-maker for us. We get multiple years of team control. And, you know, you pay him $15 million next year, That's what a run-of-the-mill free agent gets you this winter. So, you know, $15 million is not any big hurdle for anyone's budget. Um, And then you don't pay him anything for four years after that. Like, he's literally free from 2018 through 2021. Um, And then starting in 2022, you have to pay him $15 million a year for six years. So, like, way down the line, he's Mm -hmm. a drag on your budget. But owners are much more willing to make that kind of concession, where they're like, "Oh yeah, maybe the guy who owns the team in seven years is going to have to make payments to this t- guy who's not pitching for them." But I get all of the value right now, and someone else might pay the cost. I'm in. Uh, so I think is probably a slightly different case, and um, if the Nationals wanted to trade him, it would be a lot easier for them.
0: Yeah. All right. Hey. Uh, I think uh, I think we've done it. Let me just ask you one more thing. Uh, you you wrote today. You updated the buyers and the sellers. Yeah right so you have a bunch of teams that are uh, near locks for the playoffs or something like that they seem to be buyers uh, you have another teams uh, group of teams that have a real no uh, n- no chance of making the playoffs those are the sellers I- i'm curious about bubble what you refer to as bubble teams and i'm curious about just te- like what is the sort of uh, history of teams doing absolutely nothing at the trade deadline does that exist?
1: Yeah, it happens. I mean, I think... And we'll probably see some of those. Like, there were 12 teams that kind of stuck in that middle ground of, like, they're not necessarily buyers or sellers. It depends on what they do the next couple of weeks. But I think we're going to see a team like the Royals or Twins, um, maybe the Mariners. A few of these teams are, like, the Rangers. Um, a few of these teams are hanging around the AL wildcard race. As I mentioned in the piece, the AL wildcard race sucks. <laughs> like, like, unless the Yankees and Rays both get hot... There's a chance the, the like, the second AO wildcard team could have, like, 84 or 85 wins or something. Like, this is not a good group of teams contending for this playoff spot. Um, so you have a bunch of these, like, 500 or a little below 500 teams who are hanging around who aren't that far out of the way it's because there aren't five good teams in the American League this year. Um, and so they might just say, you know what? We're not good enough to buy. Like, we can't justify throwing more prospects at this roster. Uh, but we're not out of it. And selling is kind of stupid because, you know, we're close enough and there's no obvious great team that we're chasing. So we're just going to hold tight and hope it happens. And, you know, like the Rangers might be the most likely team to do that with, you know, you, Darvish. They don't necessarily want to trade him because they want to resign him. And then he's also potentially a chip to help them land Shohei Otani this winter. If you're not trading Darvish, you're not really rebuilding. So what's the point of trading anyone else? right.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, just curious about that. Well, that's it, Dave Cameron. That's it. uh, We've completed this edition. You have fulfilled your obligation to FanGraphs Audio.
1: I am happy to hear that.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for participating, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. As I say, that has been Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.